When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered cold-filtered, and cold-packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Keep all your entertainment options centered with Xfinity X1. Access live TV, Netflix, and now Hulu and Peacock. Ah, streaming zen. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Xfinity X1 gives you the most complete entertainment experience with everything from live TV to your DVR to on-demand favorites and your streaming apps. Just use your voice remote to easily find what you want to watch. Go online or call 1-800-XFINITY today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Netflix, Hulu, and Peacock memberships required. Cubs-related podcast presented by CubsInsider.com. My name is Corey. I am joined, as always, by Brendan. And since we are coming off of the MLB draft in the last week, we are joined by Cubs Insider's Greg Huss, who is one of our minor league and draft experts, and he is here to break down what the Cubs did in the MLB draft, which we will get to, uh, I think, the bulk of today's podcast, but we do have some things to touch on first. But with that, Greg, welcome to the show. We're, We're happy to have you here. Thanks, man. I, I appreciate it. You're throwing around the word expert right off the bat, and you're putting a lot of pressure on me, but I, I hopefully I can live up to those expectations. Well, you know what? Anyone is an expert compared to Corey there, Greg, so, you know. <laughs> Could have not, seen that one. Much of a Could have seen that one coming a mile away. But I, you know, you just set me up. not that I'm, I'm, uh, a f- you know, often doing this. But just a reminder to everybody: somebody on this podcast has worked in MLB front offices before, and it's not Brendan. So uh, <laughs> we'll start today on that note. Uh, but. A lot going on in the baseball world somehow. There is still no baseball, and by the looks of today, on Monday, uh, June 15th, it kind of looks like there may not be baseball, but there is a lot of discourse going on. So we want to talk about what is going on with 
the negotiations for the 2020 season, especially uh, a lot of the dialogue concerning Rob Manfred right now. The players are not shying away from letting their feelings be known, and we want to talk a little bit about the, I think, resoundingly disappointing uh, Long Gone Summer documentary, 30 for 30, that aired on ESPN on Sunday night, and then, like I said, we'll get into uh, breaking down the draft with Greg. But first, I just wanted to note... uh, Anthony Rizzo was a guest on the Compound podcast uh, on Monday. It took him a while to invite Anthony on, which I I find a little interesting. Uh, The only thing I wanted to mention was that that Anthony details in that podcast that when the Cubs won the World Series in 2016, which they did, in Cleveland, when they flew back, Anthony had the commissioner's trophy with him. And when they got off the plane, nobody told him specifically what to do with it. Nobody said, hey, whoever has the trophy, it needs to go here or to this person. So he just took it home. And he detailed how the next morning he woke up with a wonderful view of downtown Chicago with the World Series trophy in bed with him. And I just thought that was a really amazing thing to think about. Just Anthony Rizzo in bed with the World Series trophy that he won to remind everyone with the Chicago Cubs. So, but, but Lester was irritated at Rizzo for taking the trophy. So I think oh, like right, Lester yeah. wanted first dibs at it. Yeah. Well, you know, veteran, the, the the veteran, but Anthony pulled a veteran move. Just take it. You know, I'm just taking. I this mean, if it's me. there, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. So that's where I wanted to start. That was a good interview. Uh, some good stuff from Rizzo. All, always good to hear from him. Though Ian did refer to Kevin as the dog. So not really sure how to feel about that, but we'll table that for another time. Moving on to what is going on with the negotiations, and then we'll talk about the uh, 30 for 30. So basically, we've been detailing since this process started the kind of back and forth that has gone on here. And basically what has gone on here, to put it in a nutshell, right, is each side presents an offer. The players try to make as many concessions as they can, even though they should just be getting a full prorated salary uh, over the amount of games that they're playing. And the owners submit back a different proposal that, depending on the number of games, cuts the percentage of pay the players are going to get. So it all basically ends up as the owners only willing to give up the same amount of money. Uh, We have made our pro-players and pro-labor stance known very well on this podcast. But today and and over the course of the weekend, things kind of coming to a bit of a head. So the first thing that happened is the Players Association and the players basically said, we're done negotiating. The owners and Major League Baseball are not negotiating in good faith. They clearly have a bottom-line agenda here. And we're done doing this back and forth. And that's why you saw, if you were paying attention to Twitter or Instagram, things like that over the over this weekend, you saw a lot of the players tweeting out things like, just tell us when and where, right? I know Ian Happ did that. I, I saw a number of, of players tweeting something to that effect. Just tell us when and where. We're ready. We just want to play baseball. And then on Monday, uh, so a week ago, Rob Manfred said, I'm 100% positive that we're going to have baseball at some point. Then on Monday, in a special that I believe is airing on ESPN right about now or later this evening on Monday night, uh, with the other commissioners called, ironically, the return of sports, uh, Manfred said he cannot say with uh, 100% certainty, and he is not confident at all that there will be a season. Uh, And of course, the sort of... uh, 
presumed tactic here is that Manfred is going to drag this out until mandating a 48-game season would be in line with the regular timeline. Right about now, it's a little too early for that, so they'll drag it out. They'll claim that they negotiated in good faith and they tried, but 48 is the maximum they can do now, right? It's, It's all fairly transparent. And you've seen a lot of players, Jason Kipnis on the Cubs being one of them. Uh, Rizzo's retweeted a few things. Wilson Contreras called it a joke. You Darvish uh, brought back his fried chicken and directed it at Rob Manfred. Uh, if you you know remember the the implication of that, it's it's very ominous for Rob Manfred. I would not want to be him right now. But the players are not happy. Um, Jason Kipnis actually tweeted something about, you know, hey, Adam Silver, are, are you up, right? Like you know, implying that he would like a real commissioner to take over this league. So it is not good. Uh, the things that are going on here, the players are very pissed off. And there's also reports that some MLB players and staff members have tested positive for the coronavirus. There is reports that the players would be forced to sign off on a waiver, sort of waiving their health rights if they if they get sick. Uh, I'm not sure if that got confirmed, but there's just a lot coming out right now that really does not speak to something good coming from all of this. So Brendan and and, and Greg, I don't know if you guys have uh, immediate thoughts to this other than this obviously being rather dismaying, but that is where we are as of like around seven o'clock in Chicago time on Monday night. My main issue, and we talked about this the last podcast, my main issue is you have two sides who are negotiating short-term agreements. And so my, my thing is, while the owners, they have their rights to penny pinch, I guess, if you will, they are, as a proxy, kind of negotiating for the long-term health of the league as well. And so my concern is, and it always will be, is the immediate negotiations, the effects of this fighting is going to last 10 years, 10, 20, 30 years. And those same owners, as I said last week, they're not going to be owning the team in 10 to 20 years, given what we saw in 1994 and those labor strikes. Most of those owners ended up selling their teams. Who is looking out for baseball? This fighting is doing immense damage to the sport. You have, think about this, the first time a Major League Baseball draft on ESPN, but you cannot tell your fans when to watch these new players. You can't tell your fans when to watch their teams play. And then a few days later, you have Manfred coming on ESPN again, supposedly hoping to talk about good news of baseball returning with the other American major sports. He's the only one without a clear idea of when to return. This is embarrassing. It's damaging. This is the first time in in my fandom seeing such a strong response publicly from the players. You know, I wasn't a fan in 1994. I was too young. It's a wild time. And then this is independent from the concerns of just safety, which is a whole other new process that they haven't even gotten into because of these lagging issues. It's like time is running out. We are in June 15th guys like they, they got to get the season safety procedures in place plus the financial issues all within a few what a week or two it seems extraordinarily unlikely right now unless something just moves faster than what we've seen I understand that Rob Manfred represents the owners like that's that's what he is there for but it's just weird to me that that's what he does 
he's not looking out for baseball. He's looking out for earning a few extra dollars for these owners every everywhere you turn. And it's just super unfortunate that you're right. You're going to see struggles with losing fans now, losing fans 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. Uh, it's it, it just everything that they're doing is kind of clear as day. We're watching it happen. We're watching, uh, like you just said, Corey, we're, we're calling everything out as it happens. This is why they're doing this. They're, they're waiting to, to move it forward until later in July, closer to August, until they can implement that 48-game schedule. And it just it, it sucks that we see all this coming and it's still moving in that direction. It's it's just very apparent, like even from the outside, that the players have had a very legitimate gripe that they've taken up, that they want to make the prorated salary. It, it sounds like they have made as many concessions as they can, right? Coming down from 100 games or, you know, more than that, saying like, well, let's do 70 or 80 or something like that. And just wanting the health and safety protocols to be in line and and what they should be. And it just seems like the, the league and the owners find any number of ways to deflect on that right and and to make this about try to pretend like that this isn't about money and how many owners we've seen already talk about how the you know the baseball industry and owning a sports team isn't profitable and things like that and it it just all as I've said a million times I cannot fathom how anyone could land on the side of Manfred and the owners I, I think what they're doing is extremely transparent um, and any way they try to spin it, like don't buy into it, right? Like th- they're they're doing everything in their power to play as few games as possible so that they save short term money while sacrificing the larger issues here. And I and I think the outspoken nature of the players today, some of them are always outspoken, right? Like you you have some of the usual voices chiming in that are all, you know, uh, Sean Doolittle's a, a good example. Um, and they're always chiming in. But now you have pretty much like everybody logging on to Twitter or some form of social media to just be like, look, like five days ago, we said enough. We just want to play. Just mandate the season. Let's go. And now, as soon as the players say that, Manfred's like, well, actually, I don't know if, if we can do this. I'm not sure if this is going it, it, to... It's just very transparent, and it's it's just very sad. As we've talked about before, for better or worse, whatever reason people decide they don't like this, there's just going to be a number of people who just don't care about this ongoing dialogue and how public it is and how negative it is and just that it might result in a lack of baseball. And those people may just find something else to watch. And in today's world, Mm. there are so many different things you can watch. There's a new streaming service that's launched every five minutes. There's new sports to watch on these channels. There's different leagues, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you're going to have leagues like the MLS, the NBA doing things differently if they can get back up and going like and and trying new things on on this shortened schedule whatever and you know if baseball is off for over a year there's just going to be people who just don't care not everybody is as psychotic about the Cubs or their particular MLB team as the three of us are and and many of you listening are it's it's just how it works I think so this is very concerning, and I, and I can't really recall a time where the discourse over the league was this negative. I, I mean, it's just, I mean, you have 
like tons of players going online to trash the commissioner of the sport. I mean, it's just not something <laughs> that wild. I can recall seeing in 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 such uh, such large numbers. And and just to read part of the statement that I think reflects that from the MLB Players Association director Tony Clark. He said, quote, players are disgusted that after Rob Manfred unequivocally told players and fans that there would 100% be a 2020 season, he has decided to go back on his word and is now threatening to cancel the entire season. Any implication that the Players Association has somehow delayed progress on health and safety protocols is completely false as Rob has acknowledged the parties are very, very close. This latest threat is just one more indication that Major League Baseball has been negotiating in bad faith since the beginning. This has always been about extracting additional pay cuts from players, and this is just another day and another bad faith. Agreed. Love it. Yeah. Love I mean, it. that's, that's I think, a very simple way to play it. I don't know that Tony Clark has been perfect through all of this, uh, but I agree with that statement. I think it's very transparent what's happening here. The owners want to save every penny they can. That's why you have people like Tom Ricketts and Bill DeWitt, the owner of the Cardinals, coming out publicly and talking about how baseball is not a money-making venture. And we could go on a whole long rant about how that is so uh, antithetical to so much of the narrative that Tom has spun to Cubs fans, right? Like when he took over yeah. and he talks about meeting his wife and the bleachers and all that other stuff and bringing you know, joy to <laughs> Cubs fans and stuff like that. I don't remember him sneaking in little bits about how he needs to make a profit too. Uh, that's not exactly Dude, what I mean, we were even, told. E- even then, the Cubs today by Forbes are worth $3.2 billion. He bought the team right. for under a billion dollars 10 years mm. ago. Right. Let alone right? talking so, about like the, you know, year to year liquid profit, right? Like, get out of here. Yeah. But, but I mean, like at the at the end of the day, like it just, it, it sucks to have this being the highlight of the sport when you had an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, even though it wasn't the best, but it was still baseball in primetime, baseball in the spotlight, coming off and being rebounded, you know, no pun intended, by The Last Dance. So it was an opportunity to showcase the sport and kind of like catapult yourself just from being present, being the only sport available and coming off some of the hype from former, from just recent documentaries. Right. So now you have Manfred going on ESPN with having no announced date and trying to talk and build up the sport when you have these such vitriolic discussions between the owners, between the commissioner, the players. It's sad, dude. I mean, that's really what it comes down for to me is like it makes me genuinely sad and worried about the long-term health of the sport. Did you know Geico's now offering an extra 15% credit on car and motorcycle policies? That's 15% on top of what Geico could already save you. So what are you waiting for? Your teenager to help around the house? Okay, Mom. I emptied the dishwasher, vacuumed the basement, and folded the sheets out of the dryer. Wait, what? Oh, and next, I'm going to clean Mitten's litter box. Are we in some kind of prank show or something? That's a camera, isn't it? There's never been a better time to switch to Geico. Save an extra 15% when you switch by October 7th. Limitations apply. Visit geico.com for details. Some secrets aren't meant to be kept. If you feel someone you know is at risk of suicide, don't keep it a secret. Listen to them. Let them talk. And let them know you care and are concerned. Suicide is preventable. Learn how to take action and save a life. Suicide. Recognize it. Talk about it. Act on it. Learn more at recognizetalkact.org. A message from the Virginia Department of Health. 
yeah so uh you guys feeling good about that it's it's a very optimistic a time for for the game of baseball <laughs> uh you should feel very good about this and i and i mean there's a lot going on so there's a lot of nuances that you know as I I think Brendan and I have tried to say like it's we we try to touch on this but it does change I mean even as I'm speaking right now like my the Twitter is just blowing up with new comments and new thoughts so we just kind of offer like our general thoughts because by the time we speak to you guys next we'll be in a completely different place Um, but that's I mean really where it is it's it's a very negative discourse right now and you know I think you have to wonder if they do end up mandating a 48-game season and, you know, something along those lines happens, you really have to wonder what the attitude of the players would be if that was forced upon them. You have to wonder what the attitude of the fans will be because it's just it's just a bad vibe around all of this right now. And, and I, I'm just wondering, like, if they said, okay, we're doing 48, that's announced tomorrow. I, I don't know how everybody feels about that. Like, I'm not sure it just, you know, the fl- switch flips to, okay, great, baseball's back. Like, there's still some big problems to deal with. And as we talked about, you're going to have a collective bargaining agreement coming to the table soon. And that's, uh, this doesn't really bode well for those negotiations, but we'll see. Uh, Rob Manfred sucks is, and you know, the owners uh, should stop crying poor. That's my general sentiment. We're going to have an explicit pod if there's no baseball. Yeah, eventually for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to go off. So I want to talk, I know uh, that Brendan and Greg and I all watched the 30 for 30 long gone summer. Just want to offer up some some brief thoughts on that. Obviously, it's quite literally the only Cubs centric thing in you know actual like sports discourse basically going on right now. Because as we just alluded to, baseball is not happening. Um, am I fair to say this was horribly disappointing, you guys? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was. I was I I was so so excited so excited about this and I think I think that's part of it is how excited I was for it it just let me down but I I don't know if you, how, how you want to go into it but more or less I was just disappointed because the marketing how it was marketed and advertised to be and it just was it did not land. You grew up kind of in the same era as Corey and I grew up at the Cubs yeah. right like those late. 90s more or less early 2000s Cubs teams were like our first teams and Sammy was like our introduction to this crazy fandom that we have now and I feel like from that perspective the documentary didn't even get close to touching on that like didn't even get close to fully encapsulating what the environment was at Wrigley Field during that time. Did not interview Pat Hughes. Did not really talk to any of the other players besides Kerry Wood. Like, it would have been so informative to get some insight from additional managers besides Jim Rickleman or just more insight into the everyday life at Wrigley Field. And it's it's unfortunate and it, it was, yeah, it was disappointing. You know, I, the first 30 minutes, I'm like, okay, they got to get to it eventually, right? And it is right. never did. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of problems with this. <laughs> um, but a, a couple of the, the, the biggest ones that really stood out to me were, like you said, Greg, this was marketed. This isn't just like Cubs fans griping because it was mostly about Mark McGuire. And I would say it was, what, 70%? 
Maguire Cardinals content. At least, at dude, least, at least right at a minimum. Ten yeah. percent King Griffey Jr. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. And so, <laughs> the issue, the main issue that I had was this was presented. It was called Long Gone Summer, and it was supposed to be, as it was marketed, about the nineteen ninety eight home run race. Even if you looked at it just as that, that is not what that documentary was. If that's what it was supposed to be about, that was a bad version of that story. As you said, Brendan, it took about 45 minutes before they really even dialed into the actual race that was happening. There was, and, and look, I know documentaries have to provide some context and stuff like that, but this wasn't supposed to be a documentary about Mark McGuire's career or Sosa's career. It was yeah. about the 1998 home run race, and it's important to, to baseball and the way it captured the nation, and I don't feel like they touched on that nearly enough or, or captured exactly what that race was. And he, I would even go further to say if it was supposed to be a Mark McGuire documentary about him, uh, you know, setting the new record, I think it was a bad version of that too. Like yeah. when he hit mm-hmm. the 60 uh, second home run to pass Maris, <clears throat> it didn't have that like feel that I think a documentary should have, right? Like when we got, and again, like if you compare everything to how good The Last Dance was, perhaps that's a failed exercise. But when you got to Jordan hitting that shot over Byron Russell in game six in 98 to win his last title, you felt that shot. The whole documentary had built up to that moment. What is this team going to do? It's the last dance. This is the last moment. You felt it, right? It was poignant. This didn't feel like anything. It was almost like there was just sort of like, you know, here's some random YouTube highlights of Mark McGuire, and we're going to talk to the groundskeeper that caught the ball for 45 minutes. (laughs) It just was just not good in that regard, uh, let alone that, I, I mean, did they interview Sammy Sosa for five minutes? I mean, he was supposed to be a a focal point of the documentary. He only finishes behind McGuire by a handful of home runs. And the Cubs were the ones in a playoff race. Sammy was the one in a playoff race and trying to, not single-handedly, but it's, it's not a great team in 1998. Like this race, this performance that he's putting on is carrying a team to a playoff appearance. Like, and that was barely touched on. Um, so... I I really hated this. I think that the funniest thing to me was the was the fact that they focused more on one at bat that Mark McGuire had where he was ejected than they did on the entire twenty home runs in the month of June. Right. I, I mean, they barely that mentioned Sosa that. Yeah, it, yeah, they didn't mention it. And it's it's you mentioned you mentioned it before, but it's one of those things where where if this was a I don't I'm not going to pretend like I know how the production schedule was for this documentary, but it seems like this was put together as a Mark McGuire feel-good documentary to kind of boost his boost the morale around Mark McGuire and his chase of Roger Maris, because they kept alluding to the fact that it was there was so much pressure on Mark McGuire, so much pressure on right. him to get up to Roger Maris. And then after they saw the success of the MJ documentary, that they were like, oh, well, let's just make this into a much bigger thing. And they threw in Sammy Sosa and they said, hey, now we have a 98 home run chase documentary. And it's just like, that is... It, it just seemed like an afterthought the entire time, and the, and then the way they did the storytelling, they threw in the pictures of Wrigley Field today well, and that the images the of part. Old Bush Stadium, and all of that was just so strange to begin with. And then the whole storyline was all messed up, anyways. That was a wild level of lazy. Just speaking about the shots of of modern Wrigley Field, I have no idea 
why that, that ended up being the thing. But I mean, there was one shot that a friend of the podcast, Matt Clapp, had had tweeted out. Uh, I think his handle's at the blog finds. And it was Sosa hitting a home run, then crossing home plate, and then they cut to a crowd that was at the late, you know, at the latest or earliest 2015 celebrating. And it was like, what kind of thing is this to do? This is so weird. Like they show a home run from 1998 and then they show a clip that like any of the three of us could have been in, like in a, in a world series jersey. I was still celebrating <laughs> Sammy's home runs in 2015. So I don't, I don't know. I think it's perfect. <laughs> I still do to this day. Yeah, no, that it, like in th- those clips like took me out of the documentary yeah, of too. Like I felt when I was watching The Last Dance, when we're watching whether it's the Jazz games or even even some of those like Suns games, like I felt like I was back in that time period. So we're, we're a little bit of more of like an extreme psycho fan group. So maybe some other, you know, the large group of fans did not recognize when they're throwing in. No, this seemed to be a predominant sentiment online. Yeah, it's just... Um, well, of course, you know, in our circle, yeah, it's just, it's it's lazy. It's like, how can you not find, of all the highlights that we know that are just completely burned in our brains, how do you not find at least that footage to put in? Well, you they clearly had B-roll? it, at least to some degree. Yeah. Like, you have to find B-roll from your local pubs in Wrigleyville, and no, no offense to them, but like, that's what you're going to spend the two hours showing is like some, some recent bartending from 2016. Like, it just didn't make sense and then the one other issue i had and it was right from the gate too and when i saw this i i, I kind of felt bad inside like, like it was going a, the the wrong direction right at the start and it's when they had uh Sullivan from the from the tribune on and they immediately from the get-go made it sound as if sammy was this no one like mm-hmm. this nobody yep. that came yeah. out of nowhere guys he was Entering what would have been his fourth straight year with at least thirty, at least thirty homers. Like he, like he, this is not some schmuck that's just like all of a sudden. By the way, not just 30, 35. So it's not some like schmuck that's just entered in the league and turned it up. He was coming off three consecutive high power years and didn't get any credit for it. And then he went, the way they made it sound too, it made it sound as if he was drafted by the Rangers and then immediately traded to the Cubs. Yeah. They did not even mention his two-year window with the South Side. Just such an odd decision because you had, throughout the documentary, multiple people, McGuire, Sosa, and other people, all allude to the fact that, to some degree, McGuire was really boring and bland and Sosa was the one that had all the personality and was thrilled to be on this national stage and be doing this. And for whatever reason then, and again, I know he wins the home run race, but like the documentary is focusing on boring Mark McGuire the whole time, which yeah. really shouldn't be How a surprise. How do you not even mention director, Sammy's hop? The director was a Cardinals fan, yeah. so like I obviously it was boring. But it, it just was very strange. But again, like I, my immediate gripe was obviously as you said Brendan like as a Cubs fan around the age that I am 
Like, Sammy's what got me interested in the game of baseball. Sammy's what got me interested in the Cubs. It's what put it all on my radar. As I've said a million times, 2003 is what turns me into the nut job that you hear before you today. But 1998 and Sosa was what turns me on to the game of baseball. It's what brought it into, you know, my my field of vision, if you will. So no matter what, I was going to say it should have focused on Sammy a little more. But he was like an afterthought in this documentary that, as I said, wasn't a good story of the 1990 home run race, regardless of who they were prioritizing in terms of the footage they were showing. It did not capture the heat of that race and the power of that race. And and they, I feel like they barely touched on how much it meant to baseball. You know, they, they didn't really go into too much of like just how much that changed the game of baseball, the franchise of the Cubs, the the attendance across the league, just just the way that that captivated people. And and as we all remember it, right, like that's what was so important about it. The, the must-see nature of a Sammy Sosa or Mark McGuire at bat at that time. And I, and I feel like they just didn't really capture that. So not good. If you haven't watched it, I, I mean, like, uh, I got to be honest with you. Like, I think there's better ways to spend two hours of your time. Like, I would just go to YouTube and watch Sammy Sosa hit home runs. If you want to watch both of them, like, just look up both of them. Like, I, I don't think if, if you're looking for, like, a, a, a good narrative about the 1990 home run race, I don't think this was it. Um, so, could probably complain about that for a while, but we're about halfway now, so I want to transition to the draft, which is uh, why we have Greg here today. So now, as you uh, mentioned before, Greg, now time to put that expertise that I'm hyping up uh, on full <laughs> display. So as as we always note, uh, the Cubs-related podcast, not always uh, big on you know the prospects or the amateur side of the game, uh, certainly from my perspective. I've explained why that is before, uh, but especially with the way that this draft was shortened, we only have five guys to talk about. Now, the Cubs, if you're listening to this on Monday, have signed a bunch of undrafted free agents. If you go over to CubsInsider.com, I know that there's some write-ups on who those guys are, some of them uh, rather interesting. But we're going to focus on the five guys that were taken in the draft, and it's a little easy to hone in on all of them. And I'll, I'll, there, there's a lot of of ways to go about this, and I and I want to start, Greg. I think with uh, you know maybe just I'll read through the names, and then just kind of getting your broader general thoughts on on what the mm-hmm. Cubs did, their philosophy, and things like that. And then as we go through, we can kind of dig into each of the the five guys to varying degrees. Uh, but first, I think we can all agree that the most important thing that happened in this draft was in the third round, the Cubs selecting Jordan <laughs> Wogu from. The University of Michigan. Uh, I think, obviously, to everyone, not just me, that is the most important thing that happened in this draft. Do you guys agree? Ed Howard, who? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I kid, I kid. But uh, you, you all knew the minute they took him, you knew I was going to talk about this. Uh, Corey, Ed, where did the number one overall pick go? Which school? The number one overall pick? I have yeah, no idea. You know, and I don't care. It, is it related to you in it, some way? Uh, it is, Corey. Arizona State's, which is my alma mater. But so, he, it's not to the Cubs, so good for you. But he wasn't a third-round pick, so. Yeah, it wasn't a third-round <laughs> pick. Well, you were going to highlight your university in, like, a positive baseball sense, and I have because to at least put mine out there. Because he's a Chicago Cub now, yeah. That's what this podcast is about. 
Brendan. Well, you know, I'm just making sure that we get the credit due, you know, for, for, for ASU over here. Anyway, uh, so the Cubs draft in full goes as such. The first pick overall, a, a great story and someone who I think is going to be a lot of fun to follow along with. Shortstop Ed Howard out of Mount Carmel High School in Illinois. Uh, he played for the Jackie Robinson team in the Little League World Series. You, you may have uh, remembered that. There's a lot of clips, um, you know, Theo speaking to them and him alluding to seeing some of them at the draft in a few years. So that was a, a very cool clip to see. Uh, and then in the second round, taking Burl Caraway, who was uh, rated as the best reliever in the 2020 draft. He is a left-hander, uh, a pure reliever there. Uh, again, like I said, in round three, taking Jordan Wogu from the University of Michigan. Got that? Uh, Then in round four, taking flamethrower Luke Little, who you may remember uh, if you follow the pitching ninja, Rob Friedman. Uh, He shared a bullpen that he did where he threw literally a 105 mile an hour fastball so that is a real thing that is in the Cubs system now and then in round five they rounded it out with Cohen Moreno a another high school arm so Greg like I said we'll we'll jump into each of those guys I think obviously we'll spend more time on on those first few guys but in a general sense what did you think uh, about the strategy that the Cubs took here? When you look at these five guys, is this a good haul from your perspective? I know you did a lot of mock drafts. You had a lot of names that you were targeting that you wanted to see the Cubs take. What did you think about the direction uh, that they went and just how this draft looked from you know an overall five-round perspective? It was nice to see the this new front office, the new VP of scouting, Dan Kantrovitz, target a very specific type of draft, right? In past years, early on, several years ago, um, the front office was very focused in on drafting kind of low upside, kind of low or high floor guys, pitchers especially. That's where you saw like the Alex Langs, guy, guys like that go in the draft. Um, in the past couple of years, they've kind of changed suit a little bit and gone towards, towards some more up, higher upside guys, which has been nice to see. But the difference this year compared to past years is they targeted plus tools, like a, a specific loud plus tool. So that's why you got guys like Ed Howard, who is really, really good on defense. You have um, Burl Caraway and Luke Little, who are, they have that really, really, really good fastball. And with Caraway, has a really good hook to go with it. Um, you got Nuogu, who has really, really good power. There's, there's these loud tools that they focused in on that, at the very least, they're going to have that one skill. Now, after that, it comes in. What comes into play is developing the other skills. But it, it was a much different draft in terms of the type of talent they targeted and the type of tools they targeted uh, with their draft picks. And it was a weird draft, right? I mean, with it being five rounds as opposed to the normal forty rounds, you have to kind of get skills that you know will play. Um, you know, we'll, t- we'll get into the details on the specific players, but like, you know, Burl Caraway's fastball will play in a major league bullpen. Um, you know, Luke Little has a 105 mile an hour fastball. You know that Ed Howard has really, really good defense that can be um, upper, upper, upper levels of the minors ready right now. You know, um, targeting those skills was just really, really important in a draft that's only five rounds. It looks like the Cubs targeted a lot more high ceiling 
guys with accepting some of the lower floor, like even with like Wogu, for example, he has drastically changed a lot of his mechanics over the last couple of years and to his benefit. He looked really good before the season at Michigan was halted due to COVID this year. And so you're seeing a lot of the scouts talk, talk about that, where they're saying, okay, he has a lot of these high ceiling tools, but right now he looks a little unorthodox at the dish. And with Ed Howard, a little bit of the opposite. He's a little bit more advanced for his age, but nonetheless, he is a high school position player and someone who didn't fit the typical mold from from Jason McLeod's drafting process over the last few years. He typically went with highly probable college bats, the likes of which include, you know, Kyle Schwarber, Chris Bryant, and so on. So to me, that's what stood out. It's like it was almost as if they were willing to take on more of a project if the reward was that much greater. Yeah, and it's it's a little different. I mean, like I mentioned before, they they took Brennan Davis, they took Cole Roderer a couple of years ago, they selected Ethan Hearn last year, who's a high school kid with high upside. But all three of those players, even though they're high upside. They didn't have a, a tool that really stood out like some of these guys in this draft did, right? They were yeah. guys that you want to develop from very raw players. And you see with the, with the fifth round pick, Cohen Moreno, he kind of fits that same category where it, it's a very raw high school kid. You want to build his body. You want to build his, his, uh, his delivery. You want to build his batting stance, stuff like that. But for the most part in this draft, rounds one through four, um, there's skills that stand out, and you want to build the rest of them up to that level. So, Greg, let's focus in on Ed Howard to start. What did you, what did you think about this pick? And I, I like understand the answer to this, but sometimes when we talk uh, about the the amateur side prospects, things like that, I like to ask the questions of the you know the perspective of someone like myself who's not as dialed in on this part of of the game. Um, I think one of the, the, the questions that, that came out was looking at the Cubs and, and how they've been built the last few years, how they've uh, developed players and stuff like that. Why go high school shortstop in the first round as opposed to taking a pitcher? That, that I think, was one of the questions uh, that I saw the most. So what, what did you think about this pick? Uh, and, you know, just kind of on that general question, like I said, I, I know the yeah. answer, but why not a pitcher, even though that seems to be one of the more obvious things that this this Cubs uh, system needs and has certainly had a problem developing in the past? Yeah, so I was I was shocked by the Ed Howard pick. So uh, Jimmy and Jimmy Nelligan and I, who host the Growing Cubs podcast, were lucky enough to host the rant live through Cubs Insider. And so we were covering the first round of the draft um, live as it was happening. So we were on the air with with everything going on as the Ed Howard pick came in, and we we were both shocked. Like we we did not see that coming at all, and mostly because he early on in the draft process a few months ago, um, Ed Howard was mocked in a lot of drafts in the like number ten and eleven range. That's why it was it was highly likely that he was he was going to the White Sox. They, people kept talking about him going to the White Sox, being the local kid to the Sox. Um, and then after coronavirus hit and he didn't have a spring season, he kind of just fell down lists for no, no fault of his own because scouts just couldn't see him in the spring. They wanted to see if, if his power developed into the spring season 
And so teams ended up going, they, the expectation was that teams would end up going with college players that they got to see for at least part of the spring and kind of go with a safer pick. So that's why he started falling down boards to like, and, and not really far, but like to the mid 20s, late 20s, something like that. And so when I kind of was doing all my research prior to the draft and trying to look into players that I, I thought the Cubs would take, Ed Howard didn't really pop up on my, on my radar really hard. So when that pit came in and we were live on the air, we were, we both kind of like, we, we'd, we'd been talking for an hour and 45 minutes straight, and it was really difficult talking live, right? We were, we were doing that live and trying to keep the conversation up. And then the, the pit came in, and we were like dead silent for like 15 seconds because we like didn't know what happened. So we were kind of shocked by that. But with that being said, I think that the way that the the front office looked at this draft is that the draft was very, very strong when it came to college arms, especially in the first and second round, right? There were a lot of really good, uh, not necessarily like top of the rotation guys, but middle of the rotation guys with potential some some top of the rotation stuff. Um, I think that this was just a matter of kind of zigging when everybody else zags. And I know that we didn't really have full expectations coming into this draft just because we didn't know how any front office was going to approach a five-round draft. And we also didn't know what to expect with Dan Kantrovitz because he was a a new guy um, and he was combining what he knew from his time with the Oakland A's and the St. Louis Cardinals with what the Cubs front office already brings. So we didn't know exactly how he was going to approach it. Um, The Ed Ed Howard pick was actually, at first, I was a little disappointed because um, there were guys like Cade Cavalli and some other college arms still on the board that I really liked. Um, But the more I dug into Ed Howard after the draft pick came in, the more I just kind of fell in love with who he could be as a prospect and as a major leaguer going forward. I I just think that he has a really, really good skill set that you want to build off of from a high school guy. I think that when you watch videos of Ed Howard, there's like, there's a lot to like just in the videos of him playing in the field. Um, it's how smooth he is. Like that's that's oh yeah something that immediately like pops off the off in the video is like how smooth he is. His lateral quickness back and forth at shortstop. Um, his when he charges is insane, balls, insane dude. Yeah, his footwork is so so good. When he charges balls and and throws the first, it just it looks incredible. Um, and then mm-hmm. what actually sticks out to me the most is are his hands. Um, which oh, will yeah. be great at shortstop, obviously. Um, but I think not only will it help him in the field, but I think it's going to help him at the plate. Because you look at guys, um, when you're looking at guys who could potentially develop like plus power or just average power, right? When you're looking at, at developing power, uh, you're looking at two different things. You're looking at a guy that is just huge, like that's built really well, a guy like Jordan Wogu, who is just a really strong guy. Um, the other thing you're looking at is fast hands. You look at like Javier Baez, and even though Javi's not a huge guy, he has a lot of power because he has the fastest hands I've ever seen. You know, <laughs> um, so that that is what kind of helps develop power, and Ed Howard has that. So I'm 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 as much as I can be for a 18 year old kid coming out of a, a, a Midwest high school. I'm just, I'm confident in that power developing at least to. He's not going to hit 30, 40 home runs in the major leagues. I'm not. I'm not trying to argue that, but uh, he, he can hit for decent power when he's playing shortstop, which I expect him to stay at shortstop. 
And it's not just a compliment like, oh, like he's going to stay at shortstop. I think like he can be a really good defender at short moving forward. The following is a true story. I had a lady that was in her mid-70s and I'd sold her timeshare. And that was the lowest I'd ever felt in my life. I knew then that I had to do something to simply not to go to hell for selling timeshare. Chuck McDowell founded Wesley Financial Group to help folks cancel their timeshares permanently. Called her and everybody that I'd sold timeshare to and I said, this is what I said to you that was a lie and this is what you need to do to cancel your timeshare. From that point, people started referring friends to me to help them cancel the timeshare and that's how it all started. I fought the world's largest timeshare company in federal court. If I had lost that lawsuit, there would be no one helping people that have been lied to when they bought timeshare. If we take you as a client, we will cancel your timeshare or we'll give your money back. That's what makes us different. Call Wesley Financial Group now for a free information kit. 800-885-4884. That's 800-885-4884. 800-885-4884. Using an overpriced trash bag? Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks? Whippy, whippy, whippy. Or a smelly bag? Stinky, stinky, stinky. You gotta snag Hefty's Ultra Strong Trash Bag. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. It has Arm & Hammer odor control, so your nose... And your wallet will be happy, happy, happy. Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags. Hefty Strong all day long. When, and just how, how much do you think the him being a local kid, you know, he has a, a relationship that, you know, was talked about a lot with the White Sox shortstop Tim Anderson, um, obviously playing for Jackie Robinson West, going to Mount Carmel. How, how much do you think that factored into the Cubs taking – someone you know out of high school and you know maybe not going for a college guy you know maybe more developed you have a, a better idea about it because you know I, I don't I, I don't think that that alone is a reason to take someone uh, but when you kind of heard all the dialogue you know you saw the interviews with him you saw everything about this like I think the prospect of a guy coming from the city of Chicago, being the shortstop and and having that potential to develop from a first round pick to, you know, the guy on a Cubs team, there that's a, a powerful thing. And, you know, I think for, for a franchise, not something to just ignore. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I don't think that is something that you you're drafting you're not drafting because he's from Chicago. But you're right. He, I, every interview that I've seen with him is just like Outstanding. I think that he's just a great kid in addition to being a an awesome player. Um, but I, I think where it kind of comes into play with him being a Mount Carmel kid, a Chicago kid, is that I'm willing to bet, I, I don't know this, but I'm willing to bet that the Cubs had um, somewhat of an advantage of seeing him play more, have, have, have scouted him a little bit harder because he's in their backyard. You know what I mean? I, I just think that mm. that's a possibility. I think that you're not going to draft, <clears throat> excuse me, you're not going to draft a guy based on where he's from, but you're going to draft a guy based on the the confidence that you have in your scouts um, to recognize talent. And I think that he brings that, um, he kind of brought out that confidence in the, in those scouts being right in their backyard. All right. So let's, let's go to, uh, well, you know, obviously, especially if there's no baseball, we'll have more time to, you know, delve into these guys uh, further, you know, could probably spend an episode per guy you know really diving into it but let's yeah. let's go to Burl Carraway next uh you know noted as as perhaps the best reliever in the draft uh pure reliever 
has really good stuff. Um, you know, had can sit in the upper 90s. Has uh, a really nice looking curveball. Just in the, in the stuff that I saw. Um, talk to us about him. And you know, one of the things I kept seeing uh, was the ability for him because he's you know already kind of that pure reliever with such uh, good stuff already. He's one of those guys that you can peg to move through the system rather quickly. I saw some ideas being thrown around about him being able to pitch in the majors like this year if something happened, which seems mm-hmm. a little crazy to me. Uh, but just ta- talk ab- about him and a-, and a little bit about that idea that you know they were targeting someone who can move a little quicker uh, and help the Cubs more in the immediate future. Yeah, first of all, guys, I I love Burl Caraway. I I think that he's my favorite. <laughs> I think he's my favorite pick of this draft. And and I mean from a from a baseball fan's perspective and just watching him pitch is just so much fun. Like it's so much fun to watch him pitch because of kind of the skill set that he brings and his size and the fact that he's a reliever and he's a lefty and he's kind of quirky. I love watching Burl Caraway. But I'm also probably going to screw up Burl Caraway's name so many times and call him Burl Calloway. Yeah, it's a tough and one. And I'm it, it's tough. I've already done it like three times on the podcast we just dropped today. So, um, yeah. So I, I think the thing with Caraway is there was there's been conversations about him potentially being in Chicago for a shortened season. Um, he everyone's talked about him being potentially the first from this draft class to make it to the majors, and that's because. His stuff that he has now is major league ready in terms of his fastball, curveball, two pitch combination. Um, now, I don't necessarily think that'd be a great thing to move him up to Chicago this year because the the command and control is not quite there yet. It's that that's kind of what he needs to work on as a player. Um, but his two pitch pitch mix of fastball and curveball is just incredible. I, I know Trackman came out and said that he has the single best fastball in the entire draft. Um, and then curveball was ranked. I, I think I, I think it was ranked like number four. It was ranked top ten for sure, um, in terms of kind of the spin rate. So so he his fastball by itself reaches high nineties. He touched uh, triple digits with his fastball this past year, um, but he has really high spin rates with that fastball. It's a it's a really high spin rate pitch. Plus he has a really quick arm action to the plate. Plus he he pushes off the mound really really well. So not only is it coming in in the high nineties. But it is appearing a whole lot faster. You know, like the, the Carl Edwards Jr. effect, where uh, it's it's clocked at 96, but it appears to be 99, 100 miles per hour to the batter. That's what Caraway kind of has going on with with the way he has his delivery and the deception in his delivery too. Um, so between that fastball and the curveball, that it's a, it's just an absolute hammer. Like it, the spin rate is insane. It drops off the table, um, and the the four seam fastball curveball combination is something that we've seen become really popular in major, in major league in all of baseball um, over the past few years. It's kind of gone away, obviously, from the sinker-slider combination to it's a four-seam fastball and curveball combination. And that, yeah. no one does it better than what Caraway does. Now, for his timeline, because he seems a little bit more advanced, he has more explosive tools relative to his peers his age, could we see him as soon as 2021, if there is baseball in 2021? I, I think so. I, I think that it's one of those things where, I mean, there's so much to be seen with how baseball gets handled over the next year or so, obviously. But I've 
seen plenty of rumors about the Arizona Fall League expanding this year, right? So instead of organizations sending six guys to the Arizona Fall League, they're going to send uh, potentially have a team's a full team worth of their prospects, right? And I think if that is the route Major League Baseball goes in the Arizona Fall League, I think Caraway will for sure be one of those one of those players pitching in the Arizona Fall League. Now, I think where he starts 2021 will be dependent on how he performs in that Fall League. Because I think if he, if he performs really, really well, we could see him start the year in Tennessee, in AA Tennessee next year. Mm. If, wow. Not, if, he, if he doesn't pitch quite as well, then I think he starts in Myrtle Beach in high A. I, I, I would be absolutely shocked if he starts 2021 in South Bend. I, I just think wow. that he would just he would make hitters look silly in South Bend right now. Has there ever um, been one pitcher in the last... I, I can't even remember anyone starting that high in general, whether it's position player or a pitcher. Yeah, we, we've seen guys the past few years start in high A. Um, we The advanced starting pitchers a lot of times will start in high A in Myrtle Beach. But um, off the top of my head right now, I can't think of a guy that has started yeah. in Tennessee um, to begin his first like full pro year. Um, but if he does start in Tennessee, then yeah, that kind of sets him up well to be able to be a kind of end of the season in 2021 call up. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's go to the the real prize of the, of the draft here, of course, Jordan <laughs> Wogu from the University of Michigan. I don't know if I mentioned that yet, but this is uh, someone with a lot of power. As you wrote in your write-up uh, on CubsInsider.com, uh, Jordan is, is going to kind of fill that void of if you're looking for raw power, like someone that can just hit tanks, this is your guy. 6'3", 235, recruited out of high school to play football. This is a big kid. Uh, he's got a stance that, you know, I think was was something a lot of people were, you know, sort of noting right away, like that you could refine a little bit. Uh, but as we've seen, the Cubs have, have redone their their hitting infrastructure, their their coaching infrastructure and things like that. So I think he's uh, obviously someone who they're, they're going to get in their various laboratories with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Talk to us about this pick, uh, and you know, just just in a, in a general sense, as we get to these later rounds here, did you feel like the Cubs were finding good value in in picks like Caraway, Wogu, and you know, uh, Little? Like, were they finding good value in the middle round? Were there people that were still on the board here in the third round? You were disappointed they didn't get. Like, to talk to us a little bit about you know, kind of as we were going here, like what you were seeing from an overall perspective. Yeah, I think that once we got down to these rounds, right, starting around three, pretty much, um, it's kind of a, um, it, it's who you prefer, right? So, like, I had my favorites com- coming into the draft, but not necessarily favorites because all of their skills jump off the paper, off the scouting report, right? It's 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 favorites because they kind of caught your eye in a certain way, and I think that's the way teams approach these rounds. And in, in, in a draft that looks like this, rounds three for three through five, you look at guys that have a skill set that you think you can, um, I don't know if you want to say correct, but if it's, it's a, it's a skill set that you, you can kind of tinker with and make sure that you can get that player to the highest potential that they can have. And I think that, I think that Wogu is a great example of that actually, I mean, cause he's pretty, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward thing with Wogu, right? He is a huge dude. Like you mentioned, um, he has a lot of raw power. He, actually has some speed with him, which is kind of, that. that's kind of the, the wrench thrown into this a little bit, but he doesn't play really good defense in the outfield. 
But what you're looking for is a guy that has tinkered with his stance a ton in college. He's played three years of college baseball and had three completely different stances in his three years. And so what you're looking to do with a guy like Wogu is get him into that hitting lab, like you mentioned, put the stance with him that is personalized to him that you think could work, and then kind of watch him take off with the bat. Because this is a bat-first pick, and I think that he he showed that he could still hit even when he was tinkering with the stance every single year at Michigan, right? He put up a like he had a career slash line at 334, 430 with a slugging of 545 throughout his his college career. Mm. And that's with many different stances, right? So if you can get him set on something that kind of allows his upper body and his load to kind of function a little bit better with his his lower half of his body, I think that like I think this is a guy that could really take off and kind of be a steal in the third round for sure. Um, it's just it, it's you focus on on his bat with a guy like Wogu, not on his glove. All right, well that uh, that makes a lot of sense. I, I I you know I I hope that made you happy. Corey, it it with, did, with yeah. This. And I mean, look, like <laughs> I I mentioned the University of Michigan thing. It just you know the the brief aside, like. I worked for that program for three years as a student manager. Uh, So it's, you know, beyond just somebody going to the school, like I didn't work with Eric Backich, who is the coach now, uh, but I spent a lot of time with the University of Michigan baseball program. uh, And when I was there, it was not a very good program. So to see so many Wolverines getting drafted and (laughs) to see... Jordan be a cub like it's you know I I don't normally other than the the big names like when Chris Bryant and and those guys were in the system I I don't always get excited to follow along with prospects and stuff like that until someone you know like Greg or Brendan tells me to Uh, but this is this is pretty exciting I'm going to be following along with Jordan and you know hopefully uh, one day he's playing at Wrigley because that would be uh, pretty pretty cool so moving on to the fourth round as we kind of move our way through here uh, we had Luke Little, left-handed pitcher from San Jacinto Junior College, and this one seems pretty simple, Greg. Uh, you know, he's a, a, a raw guy uh, who you know you you may have to to tweak with, you may have to get him with with Hadavi and these guys to really like refine this. But you, you you're taking a guy who like I watched the gun. It might have been a hot gun, who knows? But you know, we saw it on live video throwing 105 miles an hour left-handed that's why you that's that's pretty much the story here right dude throws 105 miles an hour like that that's you're right it could have been a hot gun it very well could have been i don't care that's insane right if if he's if he can consider if there's a possibility that a guy can consistently from the left side hit triple digits with his fastball that uh, you you gotta take i was i was looking at this um, right, kind of right after he got drafted, and picture a guy like this, like Luke Little, 105 on the gun in the fourth round. Picture him dropping to the fourth round in like say 2005. Like that wouldn't happen. If you got a guy throwing 105 miles an hour, he's going in the top 10. If he can't even find the zone ever, just because like we we don't see that, you know. Um, I don't know, Luke Little. It's it's it, the the fastball is where it's at. His his off speed isn't nearly as adva- as advanced. I, he kind of flashes the slider every once in a while that you think, oh, there might be something there. Um, but the big thing with Little is that he can kind of thrive off that off that four seam fastball. Kind of try to develop the slider as he goes along. Um, but really, the big thing is being able to throw strikes. Like it's okay if he doesn't find the zone all the time. I mean, because he's going to generate a ton of strikeouts. But 
he has to be able to at least find the zone sometimes. He he walked more guys in college um, than he than innings pitched. So he had thirty six walk or thir- yeah thir- sorry thirty six walks over thirty five innings. So um, it's just a matter of he's got to find the zone. But the fastball is I mean it's no joke. Like it's it's, it's you don't come across a fastball like that every every uh, hardly ever. <laughs> so you <laughs> yeah. gotta you gotta take advantage of it when you see it. To add to that point, so TrackMan released its top 10 college four-seam fastballs in 2020. And this is, of course, using similar data that we've become familiar with with StatCast. In the top four fastballs, according to TrackMan, number one is Burl Caraway, as we talked about. And number four is Luke Little. So of all the pitchers, guys, in this draft... The Cubs got two of the top four according to these ranked fastballs. That's an, that's a huge guess, a huge plus, and it goes to the point, right? Like come, coming full circle, the Cubs went after loud tools in a completely different manner than what we've seen in years past and seeing some of the more new, new age and advanced data that we've come to expect, backing up these picks, it gives you more confidence. Guys, I want you to picture this. In the year 2022, in Chicago, you got Braylon Marquez starting the game, pumping 100 miles an hour on the gun from the left side for the first six innings. Then you got, in the seventh inning, you got Michael McAveen coming in, also pumping 100 miles an hour off on the gun out of the bullpen. You go to the eighth inning, then you have Luke Little coming in, pumping at least 100 on the gun. And in the ninth inning, you have Burl Caraway, also hitting 100 miles an hour. Like that, that is just Man. like, that's so exciting to even just think about. Oh, gosh. We need baseball back, guys. I need that. <laughs> I like Greg coming in with, you know, kind of not a, a literal visual aid, but, you know, kind of uh, getting into our imagination there to kind of help us picture these things. I mean, just from, from uh, you know, my perspective, and I, and I think uh, you both may have alluded to this, it's, it's, it's nice to see the Cubs, you know, kind of going for high velo guys here in, mm-hmm. in this draft. It, it's obviously something that you've probably noticed uh, has been a bit of a hallmark of, of some of these uh, pitching staffs in the last few years, especially the bullpen. Um, you know, just guys that are, are pitching more to contact, that rely a lot on nipping the edges of the strike zone. And certainly sometimes that's good, right? I love watching John Lester hit those cutters on the outer black more than anybody probably in the world. But you know, with the way that where the game is going and when we would run into these bullpens uh, throughout the season that the Cubs would be playing, you know, and they're just launching out one, you know, 98 to 100 guy after the other. And, you know, here comes another guy out of the Cubs bullpen throwing 91 miles an hour or something like that, right? (laughs) Like, it's just nice to see the Cubs loading up on something that was not really a predominant feature of their system you know you look at someone like little and it's it's raw there's a lot you're gonna have to work there you got to get it right but it's just nice to see like okay here's some guys that might just come and throw gas which is you know part of where the game is developing so you want it you know it's just good in a general sense to see the Cubs kind of going along with that rather than always seemingly trying to do something different Uh, or as you said before Greg uh, zigging when others are zagging sometimes good Mm-hmm. But, you know, too often, perhaps, you know, maybe you're uh, getting off on a path you don't want to be on. So rounding out the then draft. The Orioles. 
Yeah. In your uh, write-up here on CubsInsider.com, uh, you alluded to you know them finally taking someone you, you, that wasn't really on your radar. Uh, and as a high school pitcher, you know that's I, I think uh, fairly understandable. But but any any major thoughts on uh, Cohen Moreno? And then to round things out, just you know, again, like your your overall thoughts on the success of this draft. I mean, obviously, it's you know you're looking at this without the benefit of hindsight or uh, the ability to see into the future. Um, but just what you thought about this draft and, you know, now that we're uh, several days removed from it, if, if you've, you know, kind of settled into, uh, I, I don't need you to put a letter grade on it, but just your, you know, your overall feelings on, on where things landed for the Cubs here. Yeah. So with Cohen Moreno, um, he is, I can't say that I'm too awful familiar with North Carolina high school kids that um, weren't on MLB Pipeline's top 200. So um, I was kind of surprised by that. But with that being said, um, there's a lot to like about. I, I know that, that Baseball America was super, super high on Cohen Moreno, which is good to see that some public publication is that way. They actually had him in the top um, 150 for total draft prospects. Um, he's just a super projectable kid. Um, six foot two. He was a three-sport athlete in high school. Um, is is just kind of and we've seen that with a lot of guys where they the athleticism just takes really really well to pro coaching and um, he's already got a fastball that is touched up as high as 94 miles an hour um, he's got pretty good looking off speed pitches considering that he's a an 18 year old kid you know um, but there's a lot to like about Colin Moreno um, he's definitely a project but it's a project that I'm willing to to kind of put my effort into you know um i guess overall this this draft is just very very they went about it a very specific way and i guess to cover my bases it's very possible that these guys that that luke little does not develop a a slider and that he doesn't find the zone it's very possible that burl caraway um the the fastball ends up not being able to get major league hitters out it's very possible that that jordan wogu uh, ends up developing more power but strikes out way too much all those things are possible right but um it's just i i I really like the way that the cubs approach this draft because as from a fan's perspective from a perspective of someone who follows the system really closely it's just it's easy to get behind those really loud tools right it's very it's really easy to get behind that high spin rate 100 mile an hour fastball fastball from brill caraway um you just love to see that type of approach to a draft. Um, I, I think that we talk about how these guys have a high ceiling, um, and and I guess you can consider their floor to be really low because of that. Um, but like I like I mentioned, like Luke Little like has a fastball that can get major league hitters to swing and miss. Bro Caraway has two plus plus pitches. Um, that are going to play in the major leagues in some capacity, right? It may, it may be as a middle reliever that, um, um, and never a closer. But there's at least some sort of floor on some of these guys, especially those two pitchers that I named, um, that you'd like to see. So I, 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 I liked the draft. Um, there's always going to be players that I kind of looked at that I wanted the Cubs to go after. But I think that, that Ed Howard, Bill Carraway, Jordan Wogu, these guys are, are really, really good picks. So the Dan Cantrovitz era begins with a, a thumbs up from you. You're 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 pleased with it the does. direction of things. And I'm I'm also curious to see what Cantrovitz can do in a draft 
in future years mm-hmm. with a more normal draft, right? I mean, I know la- next year there's a minimum of 20 rounds in the draft, which is getting closer to normal, right? That's not it's not the 40 rounds, but it's there's a big difference between a 20 round draft and a five right. round draft. So uh, I'm just curious to see how that plays out um, in in future years, and I, I think that it's one of those things where. I wouldn't in the say in the future this draft just falls completely short. I wouldn't hold any VP of scouting or any GM accountable for how strange this year is, and I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold that against them. I guess. All right. Well, that seems fair enough. So I think that will wrap things up for us. Covered a lot of ground here today, uh, and I think certainly as I said, you know, we can uh, have Greg and his co-host Jimmy on in the future to, you know, talk more about these guys or, you know, once things get going, uh, you know, in their development, we can, you know, certainly check back in. Uh, But if you'd like to follow along with them uh, more regularly, uh, Greg, why don't you tell everyone where they can find your work anywhere you want to direct people's attention to? Yeah, so um, we are coming out with uh, the Growing Cubs podcast. It's me and Jimmy Nelligan. We host it uh, every other week as of right now. Um, I, I know with with the draft now winding down, it, sh- it could get interesting as to how we cover everything, but we've been lucky enough to have a lot of really good guests on, players, um, other writers. We've had um, Alex Cohen, who is the broadcaster for the Iowa Cubs. We've had several guys on over the past calendar year now that um, have been really, really good interviews, and, and it's been fun to talk to those guys. So if you want to give um, Growing Cubs a follow, anywhere where you can find Cubs related, right? Uh, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all that good stuff. Um, find us there. And then um, as far as, as my other work, uh, I'm appearing on CubsInsider.com, writing every once in a while about prospects. And you can, of course, follow prospect stuff and any other Cubs-related stuff, um, not just prospects, um, on Twitter at Out of the Vines. So um, I will look forward to kind of having conversations with anybody there, too. All right. So there you go. Listen to Greg, follow Greg, read Greg. Those are my instructions for you. As always, we will come back to you uh, probably a week from now, I suppose, given the nature of these conversations, something could happen that requires a more immediate discussion uh, between Brendan and I, but we've been on the ready for that for about three months now, uh, and basically all we've gotten is public bickering uh, and people like Tom Ricketts talking about how baseball doesn't make them more money to pile on to their pile of money. So we'll probably just talk to you guys next week. Uh, We'll see what topics we have for you. But as always, we thank you guys for joining us. Uh, Hope that, you know, in in the midst of the pandemic situation, as we've been saying since the beginning, uh, you guys are safe, healthy, and, you know, everything going on in the world, you're all right uh, and and getting through this okay. We appreciate you guys tuning in uh, amidst all of this. And uh, regardless of whether we're talking about the draft, uh, the lack of baseball, baseball coming back, I don't know. We always end by saying, Go Cubs. All right, let me stop this. It just doesn't feel like summer without an ice-cold Coca-Cola in your hand. Stop by your local convenience store today and grab a 20-ounce bottle of Coca-Cola or Coca-Cola Zero Sugar. Or pick up even more delicious refreshment with a 20-ounce bottle of Diet Coke, Sprite, or Fanta. So no matter how you soak in that summer sun, at home or on the go, Grab an ice-cold Coca-Cola today and enjoy.
I've been riding a motorcycle for 52 years. I started having back pain that turned into a knee pain. I couldn't even sit on the motorcycle. I was like, oh man, am I going to have to give up riding bikes? Kaiser Permanente, they decided I needed a hip replacement. So I was going to do it through outpatient surgery. <laughs> Panned out great. Recovered overnight. Was home by 11 o'clock the next morning. I'm glad I made the choice for Kaiser Permanente. I'm enjoying life. Every medical case is unique. Kaiser Foundation Health Plan in the Mid-Atlantic States, 2101 East Jefferson Street, Rockville, Maryland, 20852. There's great news during the pandemic. The new Hypermax oxygen system is here. Doctor-approved, clinically tested, at-home oxygen for improved health, fitness, and especially your immunity. Go to HypermaxOxygen.com. See how 300% more oxygen purity works wonders in only 15 short minutes. You're home anyway, so why not build your immunity and much more? HypermaxOxygen.com. That's HypermaxOxygen.com. It just doesn't feel like summer without an ice-cold Coca-Cola in your hand. Stop by your local convenience store today and grab a 20-ounce bottle of Coca-Cola or Coca-Cola Zero Sugar. Or pick up even more delicious refreshment with a 20-ounce bottle of Diet Coke, Sprite, or Fanta. So no matter how you soak in that summer sun, at home or on the go, grab an ice-cold Coca-Cola today and enjoy. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.